0: Uh, July 2nd, 1505, the 21-year-old Martin Luther was making his way through a thunderstorm near Erfurt, Germany. He was terrified of being killed in this instance because a bolt of lightning struck actually close to him. And so in that moment, he called out to the patron saint, St. Anne, patron saint of miners, help me and I will become a monk. Now, coming through the episode safely, Luther fulfilled this vow. He he dropped out of law school. He he sold all of his possessions, and he entered the monastic lifestyle. And once he was there, he proved to be an exceptional monk. Uh, He immersed himself in the practices of prayer and fasting and asceticism to the extent that he would go without sleep, that he would uh, whip himself, that he would even endure the coldest of nights in Germany without even the comfort of a blanket. Luther later would say this. He said, if anyone could have earned heaven by the life of a monk, it was I. And yet after this, after all of these efforts, he found absolutely no consolation and no peace. And he was terrified by this one thought, the thought of God's wrath. And he saw passages like Romans one seventeen as, as an unattainable standard. We know that passage reads as, as this follows, "'For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God "'is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, "'but the righteous man shall live by faith.'" In, in Luther's understanding, despite all of his efforts, despite all of his asceticism, he could never attain this standard of righteousness set by God. After all, uh, Luther was not righteous, and God was perfectly righteous. All of the righteousness that he could earn by merit still left him short of the mark. He spent eight years of his life striving to attain righteousness through this method of monkery, as he would call it. And you know what? What he learned is he couldn't earn that way. It's interesting because he asked this one question and this one question that he asked is the same question that every human being in this room and on our planet must ask. How can I be justified before a holy God? He asked the question, that's a correct question. The answer that he gave was very wrong, wasn't it? The answer he gave was that I would try to achieve that by my works, by my merits, by the good deeds that I can do. But I don't want us to neglect the fact that the question itself is very, very good. It's a question that each of us need to ask. It's a question that everyone in this room must ask and must have the correct answer for. How can a sinner like you and I be justified before a holy and perfectly righteous God? How can we be pardoned from the punishment and the condemnation that we know from the scripture is due to us because of our sin? We know in Romans 3, all all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know from the scripture that there is none righteous, no, not even one. We, we know that the verdict has been cast, that we are sinners and that we need to be made right with God. But how do we accomplish that? Must we earn our way through ritual? Did, did Luther have the right method? He just didn't do it quite well enough. That's the question that we're gonna ask today. And that's the question that's answered graciously in our text. This wonderful parable in the book of Luke a parable that's probably very familiar and one of the more famous parables, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee uh, is where we're gonna find this answer. And what I love about this is this is not a complex parable. This is not a parable that's, that's uh, difficult in structure, that's, that's laid out in a way that's hard for us to attain. But it is a parable which has such deep truth about justification, such deep truth about what it, what it looks like and how man can be made right with a holy and just God. So today in our passage in Luke 18, we're going to see three details about justification that help us understand how sinners, just like us, can be justified before a holy God. And my desire is not just that we see this, but as we come out of the other side of studying this text, we we can also learn lead us to examine how we are living our lives. What are we trusting in? Where are we finding our justification before a holy God? So real quickly, let me lay out the outline for you today. We're going to see three points, as I said. First, in verse 9, we're going to see man's comprehensive need to be justified. Then in verses 10 to 13, the parable itself, we will see man's contrasting approach to being justified. And then thirdly, in verse 14, we will see Christ's clear verdict regarding who is justified. So we come to our text, let's notice first, our first detail about justification. Number one, a man's comprehensive need to be justified. Look at verse nine with me. And he also told them this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. notice that in this particular parable, this is not always the case in parables, but in this parable, the author Luke actually gives us some background. He tells us a little bit about the audience. He tells us who Jesus is speaking to, right? Jesus told this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And it's interesting, I wanna just start with that. This is not extra information. This is a vital piece of information that really points uh, us to the purpose of this parable. Uh, Jesus wants to highlight and emphasize the need for justification. He wants to show that through, through a story, through a parable. Notice as well, who he aims it at. Uh, It's important to note in this first verse, uh, verse 9, that we do see that there is a common problem and that there is a comprehensive need of every single person. What's the text say? He told it to those people who did what? Who trusted in themselves. Those people who trusted in themselves. That's the common problem. The common problem that every human being, and it doesn't matter if you go to Grace Community Church or if you are a complete unbeliever in uh, South Africa, and I'm not picking on South Africa just because Matt's here, right? doesn't matter where you're out on this globe. We all have the exact same common problem. And that is our instinctual sinful nature draws us first and foremost to trust in ourselves. And the crazy thing is even for believers, even with the Holy Spirit, I still struggle with this. Maybe some of you do as well. Even with the Spirit indwelling us, there is still that temptation, that draw to the flesh to trust in ourselves. But that common problem also expresses really a comprehensive need. And that need is that we must be justified to approach a holy God. The reality is we cannot remain in our sinful state and we cannot remain unjustified. There is a day coming for every single one of us when we will stand before a holy God. I have... Four children, and uh, my wife and I, probably the, the, the most consistent prayer that comes from our lips is prayer for the salvation of our children. That is a daily prayer. That is an almost hourly prayer. I know many of you in this room, probably with children, have a very similar burden on your heart. And the thing that always gets back into my mind is, is I want my children to be able to stand before their Savior. Their Savior. Their Savior. They're all going to stand. We're all going to stand before Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 reminds us that, right? In that day when he is exalted, we will all stand before him. We will all bow the knee and confess with the tongue that he is Lord. The question that divides the two types of people on this planet is, do we do that to him as our savior or as our judge? There is a hell. It exists. We don't talk about it enough. We don't talk about the reality that there is a day of judgment coming and that there is a comprehensive need for every single person in this room and every single person that we pass on the street. Every time we exchange money with someone in a store, that person has a comprehensive need. Every neighbor that we live next to, they have a comprehensive need. They need to be justified. And Jesus here is acknowledging the need And condemning the solution by those who trust in themselves that they are righteous. Now, the amazing thing is I've I've kind of already showed my hand. 2,000 years later, this is still the case, right? We could go, well, this text was written, right? This is in the first century AD. Maybe the need has changed. Maybe that was a need for for Palestine. Maybe that was a need for the Jews. No, that's a need that is consistent and exists today. Consider with me just the false religions around us. I I did something unique, okay? I like to. Rich uses Google sometimes and talks about it. So I used Google Maps, okay? And I went on there and I just did a search of the places of worship around us. So I used Roscoe Boulevard, Grace Community Church. And some of you know, you drive past the Buddhist temple on the corner. And then there's the synagogue right here. If you go up to Van Nuys, there's a mosque. Uh, just down Van Nuys from Roscoe. In fact, if you did a search, just a few things I found, there are 10 Buddhist temples within 15 miles of this location. There are uh, three to four uh, Hindu temples. I said three to four because one of them, I wasn't sure if it was a temple or a, or a place of business. Um, there's, there, <laughs> I'm not sure. There's eight, there's eight Mormon churches, right? And I use that term loosely, places of worship. There's six mosques. There's 10 kingdom halls, Jehovah's Witness places, 11 synagogues, and a host of Roman Catholic churches around this spot. You you add it all together, false worship is all around us. And I didn't even include all of the false worship that exists with agnosticism and atheism and the people that are spending their day right now worshiping some idol and some God. The reality is, if we think about that, all of these places, what do they have in common? Verse nine, what do they trust in? Themselves, that they're righteous. Themselves, that they're righteous. All of these seek to gain God's favor by their works, by their deeds, by their ceremonies, by their rituals, by their repetition of prayers, by their works of penance, by religious effort, anything that they can do to bring themselves to God. Even the agnostic, as I said, thinks, and I hear this all the time from people that say, oh, I believe in God, not a particular God. And you know what? He'll let me into heaven because I'm good. They believe in their works. They believe in their righteousness. Pastor John, I think, catches this, hits the nail on the head perfectly. He says, there are really only two forms of religion on the earth. You guys have heard this. You know this statement, right? Some of you probably say it ahead of me, right? The false religion of human achievement versus the true gospel of divine accomplishment. Human achievement on one end, divine accomplishment on the other. This is the reality. And that's what's going on in verse nine. It's clear in scripture. There's just two roads and two gates. There's just two destinations, two types of people. And so what Jesus starts in this passage, as Luke notices, as Luke notes here, is he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteousness, that they were righteous. So he begins this section addressing his parable to anyone who falls in the camp of human achievement. Notice something else in verse nine, though. It doesn't stop there. He says, to those who trusted in themselves, they were righteous, second part, and viewed others with contempt. Now, I think this is important because this is a natural outgrowth of trusting in yourself. If you find salvation, if you trust in yourself rather than God, what's the natural, what's the natural tendency is that we grow in pride, right? Right? As we, as we set our standard of comparison, if I trust in myself, what is my standard of comparison? It's not a holy and righteous God because I could never attain that in my own works. But now what's my standard become? It becomes all of you in this room. It becomes those who I pass. It's those who I live next to. It's those who I work with. I set the standard as others. I see the wickedness around me and my ego swells. Well, I'm not like that guy. I'm a pretty good person. Look at how he lives. There's always somebody more wicked than you. You know, I often thought about this, and this may be a, it's an interesting analogy, but I'm pretty sure Adolf Hitler found someone else more wicked than him. You know, we always use him as the standard, but the reality is, think about him. I I don't know his thoughts, but he probably found someone else more wicked than him. And this is the case for those who are self-righteous. We compare ourselves with man rather than God. We ignore the perfect standard, a, a God who in Isaiah 6 we hear he is what? Holy, holy, holy. One holy doesn't work. It takes three. A thrice holy God, a God that is so perfect, that is so far transcendent from us that there's no way that we could stand before him. And so what do we do? Rather than comparing with that standard, we compare with a standard that we can measure up against. We make the standard lower. Uh, Some of you guys know uh, my previous uh, uh, life. I don't know if that's the right word. Our previous career, (laughs) before we came down to Los Angeles three years ago, was as a school teacher. And I taught in in a private Christian school. So any of you uh, teachers here in the room? Do we have any teachers? Teachers? Oh man, there's just a couple of us. All right. But if you've taught, I taught in a private Christian environment, I could bring out the Bible and talk about it anytime I wanted to. Um, but I had friends that were in, in public school. One thing that was interesting for me across the 11 years that I taught is I saw a continual dropping in the standards. The standards and the expectations that were put on students just got lower and lower and lower and lower. And, and what was amazing is as you lower the standards, well, more people achieve those standards. And so it becomes easier to say, "Oh wow, look at how great our school is when we've lowered the standards a great deal." That's the reality of what happens here. Far often in our lives, what we do is we compare ourselves with man, we lower the standard, and then it's very simple for us to trust in our own righteousness. Because compared with them, yeah, we're not too bad. Guess what? Scripture doesn't give us this option, does it? Think of a couple passages uh, just and in, in, you might jot these down. Matthew 548, we know, right? Instead, it calls us to do what? To be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Uh, Leviticus 19.2 says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. That's the standard that we must set against. And so Jesus starts, Luke gives us a picture of these people that he speaks to. Man's comprehensive need is to be justified, to be right before a holy God. And yet they often in this other direction. I want you to notice one more thing in this, in this first uh, point here. Notice who he told the parable to. Do you guys see those two little words? Some people. It doesn't say scribes and Pharisees. I, I don't know about you, but when I first started to study this text, I, I kind of already assumed that this parable was told to scribes and Pharisees because it, you know, kind of shows the Pharisee in a particular light. But when you look at the text, I think it's really, really interesting. And I think it's a very, very important addition here in the text is that he says some people, not Pharisees and scribes. I I do believe that Jesus is addressing the scribes and Pharisees. I do believe that, that they're in his midst and they're hearing these words in this parable. But I think it's so important that we hear the some, because what that allows is when we come to the text, we realize that we might be those people that we might be some of those people. If it said scribes and Pharisees, well, you might just say, well, I'm not a scribe nor am I a Pharisee. This doesn't apply to me. But we may be those people. And be warned, if you are like that, if you find your righteousness in yourself, if you trust yourself and your works and your merits and your deeds, guess what? You will swell with spiritual pride. You will treat others with contempt. You will look down on others and become outwardly focused and spend your time comparing yourself with the failures of others rather than looking at your own heart. And so I think the, the point of application here for us is just to remember that we all face this struggle of trusting in ourselves, that we all are going to face that in various ways and in various times, and that we should understand that, that left unchecked, that that can lead to us viewing others with contempt, that can lead to us seeing ourselves and our own merits as the means by which we're justified. So let the word assault your heart this morning. And I would ask that question even in your heart now. Do I trust in myself? Do I trust in my own merit? So Luke sets this up. He sets the stage here by letting us know again the comprehensive need to be justified. He shows us very clearly that we need to trust not in ourselves, but what he's going to follow through the rest of this parable in a savior, in one other than ourselves. We've seen his comprehensive need. Look, secondly, back to the text, verse 10, man's contrasting approach to being justified. So there is a comprehensive need we all have, but in verses 10 to 13, Jesus is gonna use this parable to show two sinners. I like to call this a tale of two sinners, okay? Because it's two sinners that he's gonna set up and show and demonstrate the two different ways that we can come and approach God. And I think we're going to see in this, we're going to see three particular areas that I want to note that contrast, that are used to set up this contrast that distinguish these two uh, approaches to God. First one, first one is their position, their position. Look at verse 10 and read it with me. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. Um, When we hear this phrase, and I'm I'm going to call you out on this a little bit. When we hear this phrase, Pharisee and tax collector. You probably already have some information, some presuppositions that are filling your head, don't you? I, I did myself. What do you think when you hear Pharisee? And I don't, I don't need back and forth, but just think in your mind here. What do you hear? What do you think of? What do you consider when you hear that word Pharisee? What do you hear and what do you think of when you hear tax collector? Because I think a lot of times we come to the text and, and we hear it and we already have all of this other information, all of this, this other scriptures and praise the Lord that you guys are well taught, that you're at a, at a church where the, the full counsel of God's word is taught. So you do have all of this information, but I wanna be careful that we don't pour in all this meaning to the text before we actually study it. What do you think of? I mean, maybe Matthew 23 comes to your mind right off the bat. And you think of the seven woes that Jesus proclaims on the Pharisees. In that text, Jesus says seven different times, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, and then he calls them something. Anybody know what that word is? Hypocrites. Seven times he says, hypocrites, 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 seven times. So what do we do? We pour in what we think of and what we understand of Pharisees into this text. And if you do that, we all pretty have, have a pretty consistent view of tax collectors, right? But if we pour that meaning in, if we think of that first of all, what do we get? We get a contrast between a hypocrite and a sinner. Not too much of a contrast, is it? That's what we get. But if we step back and consider what the audience at that day would have understood a Pharisee and a tax collector to be, I think we'll have a better understanding of what the parable is meant to, to contrast. I mean, think about it. What was a Pharisee to those that were in Jesus' hearing? As they heard this parable being taught, you know what they, they heard? A Pharisee, oh, that's the religious elite. This is the guys that knew the scriptures. These were the ones that were fastidious, fastidious keepers of the law. These are the ones that were held in high regard and were invited to the best parties and were given the seats of honor. They had a great reputation. These were the guys you wanted to marry your daughter. They're good guys. But the tax collectors, who were they? The tax collectors, these were hated. These were men that were despised in Israel. Why? Because they were traitors. They had sold their very soul to Rome for greed, dishonest gain. When you think of it this way, right, that when we start to see tax collector fleshed out and Pharisee fleshed out, it's a little bit different contrast, isn't it? And I would say more about the tax collectors. If you study the scriptures, it's interesting. If you take, there's five or six different passages that actually use tax collectors in combination with the word sinners, generically. So like in Luke 5.30, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? In Luke 7.34, the Pharisees and the lawyers come to Jesus. They indict him and they call him a glutton and a drunkard because he's a friend of who? Tax collectors and sinners. There's several other passages in Luke 15, 1 and Matthew 9, 10 that show the same kind of of understanding. And and if we, for me, what this shows very clearly is the tax collectors were so wicked. They were viewed so negatively by the Jewish people that a tax collector was a synonym for a sinner. So when Jesus says a tax collector and a Pharisee went up to the temple, what the people heard that day was not a contrast between a hypocrite and a sinner. James Montgomery Boyce puts it this way, and I think it's very poignant. It's like comparing the chief justice of the Supreme Court with a rapist. Tax collector, Pharisee. So Jesus starts by giving his audience this polar view, these polar positions, the righteous and the pious Pharisee and the wicked, immoral tax collector. But he doesn't stop at their position. He continues, notice secondly, not just their position, their posture. Look back to the text, verse 11. You'll notice something, both men stood. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing some distance off. I want to just notice the posture and the contrast between the two. Look at verses 12 of the Pharisee, first verses 11 through 12. He stood and was praying this to himself God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. His posture was definitely not one of humility, was it? He stood out in the midst of the temple, he stood in a way that was self seeking. We know from Matthew 6, verse 5, that Jesus even condemns those hypocrites that would do what? That would stand on the street corners in the midst of the temple and and would pray in such a way that they'd be seen by men. That's the posture of this Pharisee. It's an arrogant confidence. Uh, He he doesn't even have a quiver in his voice. It's not before God in a place of humility. He's not not in awe of God. There's not a, a mode of reverence here. He comes confidently, and he comes confidently in his own merits. That's the posture of this Pharisee. It's one of pride. Look at verse 13, though. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Notice a couple things about this. The tax collector, look at the contrast. He's afar off standing some distance away. If you were there that day, it's as if the Pharisee stands in the center of the temple, near the altar, and the tax collector is out on the outer fringes of the court, unwilling to come in where he can be in the midst. The Pharisee wants to be in the midst. He wants the eyes to be laid on him. He wants people to hear his prayer. The tax collector is just off in the corner to the side. He's on the fringes. Notice as well that he's even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven. I don't know how many of you have uh, children that, it's kind of funny, um, our kids, this may be shocker for some of you, they're not perfect, and um, sometimes they sin, and when they do sin, it's, it's interesting because there's really two postures, and all of you parents in the room have experienced this, and if you've ever been, those of you that have parents in the room, okay, um, you've probably done this, but there is a drastic posture of humility, I remember you know, with little, when our children were little and they would sin in such a way and they get caught and they come to you with their eyes down and they kind of shuffle in and they kind of stand on the fringe of the door. They don't want to come into the room and face you. And, and there is this humility and there is a posture of unworthiness, right? So anybody experienced that? That posture, this is the posture. It's a, it's a childlike approach. He averts his eyes It's interesting, if you look in the text down just a little bit beyond this, look at verses 15 to 17. You know, after our parable here, Jesus actually later says in verse 16, uh, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such of these. And then he says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. The reality is that there is this childlike approach to God, right? An approach of what? Dependence, an approach of, humility. Like a child who comes into the room with, with his father and, and isn't puffing out his chest, isn't, isn't trying to assert himself, but recognizes that he is dependent upon his father. And that's the approach of this man. Notice as well that he's broken, that he's mourning over his sin. And we see that in the, in the phrase that he did what? He's beating his breast. Okay. Uh, this, this terminology, this is an idiom that basically means the fact that he was sorrowful. This this is a a man that comes not in arrogant pride, but rather in penitence and humility. He had nothing to bring to God. He had nothing to offer and he knew it. And just take a moment to step back and apply this and think about this. What's your posture before God? How do you approach God? How do you approach him in prayer? How do you approach him in the morning? Is it a posture like, like this Tax collector, that's humility, that's a posture of dependence, that's trusting in the Lord and comes to Him with childlike faith? Or is it a posture of arrogance, like the Pharisee? Maybe you've walked with the Lord for a long time. Maybe you've studied the Bible cover to cover multiple times and you know all the answers. What can happen with answers is pride. And we can come to a place where we don't think we need to learn anything more. And we, rather than having a, a, an attitude of dependence on the Lord, we have an attitude of arrogance. And I would encourage all of us to just search our hearts and make sure that we, we understand that we can approach God in boldness, right? Hebrews 4.16 reminds us, right, that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence and with boldness. But do we ever approach that throne of grace in our own merits? That's not where the boldness comes from. The boldness comes from the reality of God's character. It's that God is merciful. It's that God is gracious. It's that God is forgiving. Therefore, we can come to him with boldness to bring our prayers and our requests before God. So consider the way that you approach God. Is it like the Pharisee? Is it like the tax collector? We've seen their position. We've seen their posture. Thirdly, let's look at their prayer. Look back to verse 11. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Just a couple observations from this text about the Pharisees' prayer. Notice that while God is addressed, it's pretty obvious that God's not actually who the prayer is being made to, right? The, the NASB chooses to translate this that he prayed this to himself. Um, it, there's a, it, it could be that he prayed this about himself. Um, I actually think this is a, a right translation. I think that what what they're getting at here is that this man was praying this to the crowd around him to hear and to himself, and that he's recounting. Notice the prayer. He's recounting his own merits, and he does it in two ways. There's, there's. Uh, it's interesting. There's no petition. You don't see a petition here. He doesn't ask God for anything, right? There's no dependence on God. There's no love of God or neighbor expressed in this. In fact, the only time that God's mentioned is just at the beginning of the prayer. God, I thank you for what? We'd say, oh, well, there's, there's some gratitude. But Lo way says, I thank you that I am not like other people. Five times in this prayer, the, the pronoun I is used. What's the prayer about? The prayer is about the Pharisee the prayers about the Pharisee. And notice when we started back in verse nine, the reality is Jesus told this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. What's the Pharisee trusting in? It's very clearly in himself for his righteousness. Because what does he say? I thank you that I'm not like other people. So here's the comparison. The negative, I'm not like those people, those swindlers. I'm not like those people, the unjust. I'm not like those people, the adulterers, or even this tax collector demonstrative pronoun, this tax collector. There are times that I wish that the Bible, I wish that the biblical time when Christ was here, that there were video cameras. Because I'd love to see, and I know there's been movies and TV shows have been made uh, you know, about it. They just do not do justice. I would love to see what this scene would have looked like. I'd love to see, because in my mind, what this Pharisee does at this moment when he says this tax collector is he points out and I'm not pointing at anybody in particular here in the room, (laughs) he points out this tax collector. And you can imagine, you can imagine if I pointed someone out in the service right now, everyone would turn and fix their gaze upon that person. He wanted to point out clearly that he wasn't like that guy. And what was his purpose? His purpose, in essence, was to show and demonstrate that he was just because of his merit, his good deeds, and what he had done. And this man, this tax collector that's over there was not. Because everybody knew he was a sinner. Everybody knew uh, the wickedness that was involved in his life. In his mind, this Pharisee here, he's seeing his works as his ticket for salvation. Archibald uh, Robertson put it this way. This prayer was nothing more than a recital of his own virtues for his own self-satisfaction, not fellowship with God. And that's why we hear things like, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Again, we must always think about this as we come to this text. Where are we in that place? Where do we find our justification? Is it in the finished work of Christ or is it in the merit that we do? Is it the fact that we come to church regularly, that we tithe, that we give offerings to the Lord, that we pray? Notice the contrast though. The prayer of the tax collector, verse 13. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I love that prayer. I think it's one of the most beautiful prayers in all of scripture. And I want you to notice two things from this prayer. One, the tax collector realizes who he is, doesn't he? Look what he says. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Notice the use of the article here, we, uh, the sinner, not a sinner, the sinner. It reminds me of 1 Timothy 1.15, when Paul, referencing himself, speaking of himself, says that he is chief of sinners, the sinner. The emphasis here is that the, the tax collector sees himself as the guilty party before God. There is no one else in his mind. He's not pointing across to the Pharisee. He's not pointing out the hypocrite. Instead, what is he thinking about? He's thinking entirely upon God. He doesn't complain about the assessment made by the Pharisee. He doesn't point out the fact that that there's excuses for his sin. He doesn't do any of that. Instead, what he does is he confesses his need and his dependence before a holy God. He sees himself in relation to God. And his sinfulness is so overwhelming, so much that he beats his chest, that he averts his eyes, that he stands afar off and he depends fully on God. God, be merciful to me. Like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, he recognizes what? That he's a man of unclean lips. He's a man of unclean lips and he needs his lips to be purified by God. But secondly, notice he doesn't only realize who he is, but he realizes who God is. Who's he address his prayer to? To God, just like the Pharisee. The Pharisee said, said, God, it's the same term. But this is so different from the Pharisee, isn't it? Everything about this prayer is what? An exaltation of God and a humiliation of himself. It's short, it's succinct, but he simply has one request, a single petition, doesn't he? God, be merciful to me. God, be merciful to me. I, I think it's pretty impressive when you think about the reality when, when Jesus sets up this parable, I mean, this would have been so stri- striking for the audience to consider the fact that the prayer was nothing more than God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's nothing else added to it. There's nothing else that needs to be there. It's even down to the very verb that's used. It's a, it's a passive imperative. It means be propitiated, be satisfied. His request is very simple. He knows he can't satisfy God with his good works. He knows that he cannot bring his own merit to the table, it's not self-righteousness that is going to bring justification. And so he clearly articulates with these words, he has no other hope than the mercy of God. And I just want to stop for a second and apply this. What a blessed hope we have. What a blessed hope we have that our God hears these prayers. Because if you think about it, what does this prayer say? This prayer is a prayer that can be prayed by any person no matter how dark the circumstance, no matter how deep the sinfulness, no matter how, how long you've lived in sin, this is a prayer that can be prayed by anyone once they come to a place of dependence. You don't have to teach this prayer in multiple steps. Isn't this a simple prayer? A prayer of, of petition of mercy. And I just love the fact that this is the reality of what we as believers can bring as a promise to every unbeliever. God is quick to hear this type of prayer, isn't he? God is quick to hear this type of prayer and to answer a prayer for mercy. And he will. Now I wanna step back from the text for a second. I didn't read verse 14 purposely because I didn't wanna give away the ending. If you stopped right here, Through verse 13, what do you think the audience would have thought of this parable? Who would the hero of the story be? And I think that if we really contemplate what we talked about, the Pharisee, and and especially the striking contrast in the type of prayer, that for many that were around Jesus, who were doing what? Trusting in themselves for righteousness, they would have heard the Pharisee as who? The hero. The Pharisee would be the hero, But then Jesus closes with verse 14. I love it. Jesus says this, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is our third point, Christ's clear verdict regarding who is justified. See, the reality is everybody would have heard the Pharisee as the hero of the story, and Jesus flips it on its head, and he says, no, You've missed it. This man, the same, this man that the Pharisee pointed to, the same, this man that the crowd would have seen as a sinner, a horrible, wicked sinner. That man was the one that went home righteous. This man. I love it as well. It's it's the fact that he was justified. Again, a, a perfect passive participle. It literally means having been justified. As that man walked home from the temple that day, guess what? He went home justified justified. It was an imputed justification. It was not something that he earned. He didn't have to go and do 10 Hail Marys. He didn't have to go and, and do a whole bunch of meritorious work. There wasn't a system of discipleship that he had to complete before he could receive his justification. He went home justified. And I love the fact that that is the reality of every single believer in this room every single one of us in this room have been justified by exactly the same process. We have been justified not because of our own works, not because of our own merit, but because of faith and God's mercy and God's grace. We all know Ephesians 2, eight and nine, right? For by grace, you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. This is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And think about the contrast. The Pharisee thought he had much to boast about, and he did. He did. He tithed. He fasted. He did all of the works that he thought would get him to heaven. But he went home remaining in his sins. He found no forgiveness because he didn't ask for any. He found no justification because he didn't think that there was any needed. He sought no reconciliation to God because he believed that God was already well-pleased with him. And he trusted in himself and he looked on with contempt those around him whose deeds did not measure up to his. But Jesus says the clear opposite. This man went home justified. The one who did nothing more than beat his breast, avert his eyes, stand afar off and cry out to his God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Now, there's one more point item in verse 14 I want to show you that I think is important. Look at verse 14. Those first three little words, I tell you. I tell you. The man, Jesus Christ, who stood in this moment in time and told this parable to those who were trusting in themselves, that same man is the one that John fourteen six tells us is the way, the truth, and the life. When you think about it and consider that this is the man who humbled himself, Philippians 2 tells us, humbled himself even to the point of dying on a cross, giving his life. Why? That that tax collector, that you and I, that our neighbors, that our friends, that our family members, that we might have the ability to be made right with God, that we might be reconciled to God, that we might be made just Romans 3, 21 through 24 tells us, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. It's so clear from scripture that there is no justification and no righteousness that can come by our own works. That's the whole point of this passage. The whole point of this passage is to point out that justification only can come through another. And the reality is that those people in that moment and those of us here, even in in this moment, that it's the same Jesus Christ, that they stood in the midst of the one telling the parable had the way of eternal life for them. And it's no different today. The one who holds eternal life for us is the savior, Jesus Christ. He's the one that made a way that we might cry out for him, to him for mercy, that he would hear us, that he would pull us into the family of God. And it's crazy to think, but none of the audience that day, none of us today can be justified in any other way. That's it. It's a simple truth. It's a very important truth. And it's a truth that we should share clearly with others. We've seen man's comprehensive need to be justified, man's contrasting approach to being justified, and Christ's clear verdict regarding who will be justified. All who humble themselves, all who seek the mercy of God, and by faith trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, shall be saved. But if you trust in your works and your deeds, you'll remain in your sin. And you'll return to your homes, not justified. That's the reality and the sad truth is that there's really two types of people. And I just wanna end with this. 1 Peter 5 through 6 reminds us, to humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. And I just wanna remind each of us as we go back to our homes today, it's Mother's Day. We're gonna probably, some of us are gonna go out and have lunches and, and uh, to, to celebrate and enjoy our mom's. Don't forget the fact that it's the same path for all of us. The path of humility leads to exaltation. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. As you're you're meeting with your neighbors or your friends, your family members that don't believe, share this parable with them. Talk through the reality of justification and show them clearly from Scripture that there is only one way that we can be made right with the Holy God. If you're a believer as well, this truth should create in us well up nothing more than worship and praise. Consider the fact that we like that tax collector, every single one of us, we bring nothing to the table. We have nothing of our merits to bring that God sees and says, oh, that's acceptable. The only thing we bring is utter dependence and childlike faith upon our savior. That's how we should leave this room. I would just wanna echo and finish with that one statement, the prayer that we should all have. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Let's take that with us as we leave. Let us pray. Father, I am so grateful and thankful for time in your word today. Thank you for the truth of justification that is found uh, richly in this passage of scripture. Thank you for uh, the Holy Spirit intended writing of this text. Thank you for this parable that shows us clearly the temptation, to find justification outside of faith in Christ, in our own works and trusting in ourselves. Help us to see that and uh, instead to trust and fully depend upon you, our God. We love you and we praise you and we thank you for sending your son. We thank you for the promise of eternal life that comes as we, by faith, trust in him. We thank you for the day. We pray that you would go with us now as we go about our our day. May we worship you. May you give us ample opportunities to share this glorious gospel with others, that they may come into the family of God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.